0: Welcome to the AJP Heart and Cirque podcast. I'm Cara Hensel-Keehan. Today we'll discuss a new article by Mali et al. titled, "Serine arginine rich Protein Kinase 1 Inhibition for the Treatment of Diabetic Retinopathy. This article was published May 10, 2022 in AJP Heart and Circulatory Physiology. Joining me today are consulting editor Dr. Sean Bender, authors Professor David Bates and Dr.
1: Naseeb Mali,
0: and content expert Dr. Jerry
1: Breslin. Let's get started. Sean? Thank you, Kara, and thank you Naz, Dave, and Jerry for joining today's podcast. Diabetic retinopathy is a common diabetic microvascular disease and a leading cause of blindness in the Western world. Defects in the blood retinal barrier owing to increased production of vascular endothelial growth factor A, or VEGFA isoforms, in particular VEGF-A165A, promote angiogenesis and permeability. Prior work has established that inhibition of serine-arginine-rich protein kinase 1, or SRPK1, can prevent blood vessel growth by switching VEGFA splicing from VEGF-A165A to VEGF-A165B. Whether SRPK1-mediated upregulation of proangiogenic VEGFA-165A contributes to diabetic retinopathy and underlying mechanisms remain unclear. As a corollary, it is also unclear whether SRPK1 inhibition could attenuate the pathophysiology of diabetic retinopathy. This original research article addresses these important questions using a robust combination of mechanistic in vitro studies using human retinal pigment epithelial cells alongside studies in type 1 diabetic rats. Naz, could you please briefly describe the rationale for the study, how it was conducted, and the main findings of your important work?
2: Hi, Sean. Um, thank you for that question. Um, so, as you said, the rationale from this study really uh, dated back to 2002, um, when Dave found that a switch in splicing in vascular endothelial growth factor Uh, which at that time was classically known to be a potent inducer of angiogenesis and even even more potent inducer of vascular permeability, could actually be alternatively spliced into this alternative isoform, VEGF165b. So our study focused on this um, alternative splicing in diabetic retinopathy, specifically looking at permeability, changes in permeability in response to diabetic conditions. So we conducted our study both in vitro and in vivo. Um, So we're lucky enough to be able to get human donor eyes from a UK eye bank. And then I was able to actually isolate retinal-pigmented epithelial cells uh, from these eyes and culture them and actually measure the impedance. So I was able to culture them to the point that they would form the nice tight monolayer that they actually create, they actually have in the eye. And we were actually able to measure the impedance. So um, on the in vitro side, I cultured these cells and subjected them to hyperglycemia in a similar concentration as what would be found in the eye. And then I was um, able to monitor the impedance and also looked at um, the activity of a regulator of VEGF splicing, slpk one um, And I did this through looking at the splice factor that slpk one regulates and looking at the localization of, SRP, of this splicing factor SRSF1 in the cells. So when slpk one activates SRSF1, it actually translocates from the cytoplasm into the nucleus. Um, so I, uh, looked at the localization through immunofluorescence and was able to see that there was an increase in SRSF1 nuclear localization in hyperglycemic cells. And when you inhibit SRPK1 through the Sphinx D1, which was the SRPK1 inhibitor, this actually caused the SRSF1 to move back into the cytoplasm. And this translocation was really dependent on hyperglycemia because when I removed the glycemic stimulus, the of one translocated back into the cytoplasm. And then I also looked at this through measuring the impedance as I said earlier, and uh, we also found the same thing. So uh, hyperglycemia caused a decrease in impedance. Thus we determined that this was an increase in permeability and that when you use the SRPK1 inhibitor sphinx-31, the impedance was then restored, and also this impedance was a uh, change in impedance rather was found to be dependent on the alternative splice factor Vegf165b. Because when we co-treated with a antibody against Vegf165b, the impedance there was no change in impedance in hyperglycemic RPE cells, um, retinal pigmented epithelial cells, and um, then I also performed the study. In, in vivo. So we use the uh, streptozotocin model of type 1 diabetes in Norway brown rats, which do develop increases in permeability and diabetic retinopathy-like symptoms in this type 1 model. And we were able to use this new technique that we published um, a few years ago, uh, where we're actually able to measure the permeability of the vasculature in the eye without having to call the animal. Um, So we use sodium fluorescein, which is a fluorescent dye, and we performed fundus fluorescein angiography. We actually developed this algorithm, which allowed us to measure the permeability of the eye. And the great thing about that was we were able to monitor the the same rats throughout the course of the study. So initially, what we found is that this uh, type 1 model did actually work. When we treated them, rats with uh, streptozocin, we did see an increase in permeability over 30 days. And when we use, when we administered slpk one inhibitor in the form of an eye drop twice daily, we actually found that this blocked this increase in permeability. And we also looked at a measurement of diabetic macular edema through optical coherence tomography. And we also found the same thing. So just over 30 days, we did see a slight slight signs of diabetic, uh, diabetic macular edema, so a slight separation. And when we use this um, SLPK1 inhibitor, this we didn't see these in these um, diabetic rats. So it gave us clues that um, we really think that SLPK1 inhib- inhibition could have positive therapeutic outcome in diabetic retinopathy and also the diabetic macular edema.
1: Dave, your exciting in vitro work in human cells is complemented by studies in rats with type 1 diabetes. These studies testing the efficacy of an SRPK1 inhibitor delivered via eyedrop utilized a prevention design where eyedrops were initiated at the outset of diabetes of the diabetes phenotype. Do you believe such eyedrops would be beneficial as a treatment in established diabetic retinopathy?
3: Thank you, Sean. There are a number of things that we would need to do to be able to find out whether this would work in humans. Um, Obviously, the first thing is to to implement a clinical trial and to take what our findings from the um, rat model into a a, a human requires a number of of changes to to what what we've done so far. One of the interesting things, of course, is that rat eyes are much smaller and much thinner than human eyes. And so you need to develop molecules that will be able to penetrate all the way in across the sclera and across the, the, the choroid and into the retina in order to be able to affect SRPK1. And that is what the, we, we subsequently did with the, the company Exonate, uh, which is a spin-out company from the University of Nottingham, to develop molecules that can penetrate into the back of the eye in larger animals. Um, and that is now a uh, towards the end of the phase one clinical trial in diabetic macular edema. We'll have to wait to see what the results of those are but the principle that's reversing the switch from VEGF165A to VEGF165B would reduce the permeability of the retinal vasculature and potentially of the uh, leakage through the, the retinal pigmented epithelial cells and reduce diabetic macular edema or the uh, adverse effects of, of diabetes on um, non-proliferative or proliferative diabetic retinopathy are certainly things that could be, um, that could be possible.
1: Thank you. These have been great answers. So, Naz, do you believe that SRPK1 inhibition would then be similarly effective in a model of type 2 diabetes-associated diabetic retinopathy, since this is the most common form of diabetes in the broader population?
2: And Thank you for that question, Sean. So, whilst we don't have the evidence in a type 2 in vivo model, so what we're monitoring here are the secondary effects of Diabetes, um, which are actually the primary cause of disability and mortality in diabetes. So our in vitro models, looking at both type one and type two, is really looking at the effects of hypoglycemia, and we do see this switch in splicing. So we see in hypoglycemia there's an increase in the proangiogenic isoform, and also when we inhibit, we see the decrease. We also performed a NanoBrat, which um, looked at. The proximity of SRPK1 and SRSF1, and we found similar results. So we found that the um, there really was an activation of SRPK1 in hyperglycemia. And then when you block it with um, our inhibitor, there's a reduction of this co-localization of um, SRPK1 and SRSF1. And whilst our in vivo model is a type 1 in vivo model, what we're actually looking at in terms of our like, primary output metrics are vascular permeability within the eye, which we know that it is increased in um, both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So, yeah, I guess whilst we don't have the direct evidence in the in vivo model, these are effects that are seen in both type 1 and type 2. So I would imagine that the treatment output would be the same. And also our model. So, um, in order to like maintain the model for thirty days, streptozotocin is actually a very harsh model. So, um, in order to keep the rats ongoing for like thirty days, we did give them an insulin bolus to just help their, um, just to help their health really. So, I, I guess it's a less
1: harsh model. All right, wonderful, uh, Dave. Could you speculate based on the results of your in vivo rat studies and the outcomes related to retinal damage how efficacious SRPK1 inhibition may be at preventing or reversing vision loss in humans with diabetes?
3: I could certainly speculate. The principle that blocking the increase in vascular permeability in the eye by blocking VEGF is is a very well established one. We know that anti-VEGF antibodies or VEGF traps um, are able to 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 reverse the um, impact of increased vascular permeability. And for patients with diabetic macular edema, which is a direct consequence of this increase in permeability, these are mainstays of treatment. The problem is of course that you need regular intraocular injection um, every four to six weeks, depending on the the agent uh, for for this sort of treatment. Um, And this is not a a very satisfactory uh, method of treatment over the long term. So the development of an eye drop formulation that can um, be given on a daily basis, I think really does change the the landscape because patients who have uh, diabetes and increased um, permeability really don't get treated until they start to, to get impaired vision whereas with an, because of the injection into the eye, whereas with an eye drop, you can start treatment much earlier. You can start it uh, uh, as soon as you start to see indications of retinal uh, uh, leakage, which will, uh, are picked up during regular screening for, for diabetics for, through the retinopathy screening services. So I think there is a, a really hopeful uh, outcome to this in that, in that it may well be possible to treat patients and prevent um, diabetic uh, blind retinopathy causing blindness um, in patients.
1: Great. Let's turn to our, our outside expert, Jerry. So Jerry, what do you think are the major strengths of this study?
4: Yeah, thank you, Sean. What I found to be the, the major strengths of the study uh, were uh, the combination of the in vitro models uh, using often multiple, you know, readouts uh, to, to identify the same thing. For example, permeability uh, so, the, you know, the authors, they would use both, say, an impedance model, which gives you a sense of barrier function, but then also look at the permeability of a particular molecule. Um, and then, so this combining different approaches and also both uh, in vitro and in vivo approaches, I, I felt uh, was very strong. The, the other thing I felt was very strong about the study is the whole premise I don't really know of anyone outside this group that's studying the different splice variants of uh, VegfA, a And so I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of promise here. I mean, you know, there's different splice variants out there. They've got to be doing something, right? And so the group has been very persistent looking at this and has found a potential application uh, that I think has a lot of promise.
3: Jerry, that's really kind of you to say that. Um, I, I must put a, uh, a little shout out to some of the, of the other people who are working on this as well. So Ryan Annex's group um, uh, have, have done some very nice work on uh, VEGF165B cardiovascular disease. There's um, a number of groups in Japan who have looked at, at this in, in different eye, eye conditions and also looking at, um, at SRPK1 inhibitors. Um, and Nathaniel Gray's group at Harvard have, uh, have found some interesting SRPK1 inhibitors an amazing group working on systemic sclerosis in Italy, but run by Minetti. And I think one of the things that we're beginning to see now, um, although back in 2002 when we first discovered it, it took a bit of a while to take off, what we're seeing now is that a lot of people around the world are starting to, to work on the, this principle of alternative splicing of VEGF um, and how it's affecting different uh, conditions Uh, It appears to be something that's not just limited to diabetic retinopathy, but is at play in a number of different conditions, including cardiovascular disease and cancer.
1: So Naz, what do you feel are the implications of the study in regard to the broad understanding of diabetic retinopathy? And do you feel these data should shift the thinking about mechanisms of diabetic retinopathy?
2: Thanks for that question, Sean. So our study, we focus on looking at the outer blood retinal barrier, which and most other studies look at the inner blood retinal barrier. So that's um, the tight junctions between the endothelial cells, the retinal endothelial cells. Whereas we actually find that, and this is already known that there is also an increase in outer blood retinal barrier permeability in um, diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema. And actually, what we find that's really important is that targeting the outer blood retinal barrier can have therapeutic implications in diabetic retinopathy. Molecularly, we see that the importance of SRPK1 in vascular permeability and the alternative splicing of uh, VEGF in um, pigmented epithelial cells. And I think like our focus um, in the study is rather than just looking at directly the VEGF, we actually look at the alternative splicing because one of the reasons it's hypothesized that there's um, a large amount of non-responders. I think there's like 40% of um, patients that have um, targeted vascular endothelial growth factor therapy are non-responders. And so we find that actually it's not VEGF itself, it's the alternative isoforms that's important. Although there are other papers that talk about we do see a decrease in uh, VEGF165b, so the protective VEGF isoform, in the vitreous humor of um, diabetic human uh, retinopathy patients. Our study is the first where we focused on the alternative splicing of uh, VEGF itself, and as in the form of a treatment option, the real importance of targeting the outer blood-retinal barrier as well is that. The retinal pigmented epithelial cells are the primary source of VEGF for the eye. So it's not the endothelial cells because they make such a a small portion of the cells of the eye. And since they're producing the huge amounts of VEGF um, within the eye, targeting it does seem like a real viable uh, treatment option.
1: Dave, could you give us a brief history of the overall focus in your lab on this particular issue and how we've gotten to where we are today?
3: Yeah, sure. It's interesting because uh, this project started off when I was in discussion with a small UK charity called the National um, Eye Research Campaign, which is now called Sight Research UK. And they'd put a call out for grant applications for PhD studentships to train people in ophthalmology research. We put a grant application in and they came back and said, we really love the grant application, but we can only fund two and yours wasn't the one we're going to fund, but we would like to go out and raise money to get this project funded. And they, in fact, went out over the following year to apply for funding uh, from various different people, um, from Rotary clubs and from um, Masonic guilds and, and other donors around around the UK to raise money for this project. And then a year later, they came back to us and said, "We've got funding." And uh, when I, um, I interviewed Naz for a PhD student uh working at the university, she was so uh, excited about working on diabetes and diabetic retinopathy. This is clearly something she wanted to do for her career. She had the intelligence and the vision and the, if you'll excuse the pun, to see where, where this could go. And so she came in to, to, to learn how to do both the cell biology, um, which was sort of up and running in my lab, but also to develop the in vivo techniques for being able to measure permeability. And one of the really interesting things about the technique was that we had previously measured permeability in the, the, in the rat eye by perfusing with a, a blue dye, Evans blue dye, which is a standard in the, in the, in the field, which meant that we had to kill the animals um, every time we wanted to measure them. And she was able to develop this continuous monitoring technique using both fluorescence angiography and um, optical coherence tomography which meant that you could use one-fourth the number of animals to get this to get actually a more powerful result. Uh, So the the national eye research campaign were were excellent in in funding it. Um, They they weren't particularly focused on an improvement in uh, in trying to to have a, a, a reduction refinement or replacement of animals in this but actually what came out of it was a refinement and a reduction to animal use which resulted in a, an increase in, in our understanding of the um, uh, of how the retina worked and I was very fortunate to have Naz as a PhD student in my lab for, for three years. Uh, she did her, her PhD in, in three years flat um, and then moved on to a postdoc uh, which um, uh, she's uh, I understand working hard at and, and being very successful at. So it was a it was a really rewarding project, and was able to be run alongside collaborations with University of New South Wales, Jonathan Morris, who was able to make the molecules that we used, uh, and the spin-out company Exonate that we uh, we worked with uh, in terms of the um, the the, the SRPK1-SRSF1 interaction. So it was a, it was a beautiful sort of coming together of, uh, of funding and collaborators and, and projects that enable this work to happen.
4: Dave just reminded me of one of the strengths, you know, and this is kind of based off of um, my experience when I was growing up. So when I was like in eighth grade, ninth grade, uh, my brother was up in college and had gotten into optometry school. And, um, you know, late when he was in optometry school, he would tell me stories like, Boy, I, I look into uh, people's eyes, and I can see the story of their health. Uh, I can tell if they have atherosclerosis, uh, and in some cases, you know, I, I find out that they're diabetic when they they didn't even know uh, they were diabetic because they've already advanced to the stage uh, where you know they're developing retinopathy. So, you know, one of the the nice powers of this study is the development of a longitudinal method to look at the progression and changes in permeability over time uh in the same animal and uh, i think that that's very powerful and you know in addition to uh supporting the findings of this study would be applicable uh, to future studies as well
1: thank you naz david and jerry for joining us today in this discussion and i encourage the listeners to check out this exciting article by malhi et al in ajp heart and circulatory physiology back to you Kara.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the AJP Heart and Circ podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by Ray Mitchell. Catch the latest episodes of our podcast at physiology.org journal slash AJP Heart.